Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Magic the Gathering unofficial audiobooks. My name is Phil Dawson. I'm happy to report we've added to the Patreon this month, and I couldn't be more excited. Thank you, Joey, who joined up as a content goblin. A reminder, too, that everything from the Patreon is going to reuniting my wife with her best friend, trying to get her over here to Japan by October for my wife's birthday. So if you have the means, it would mean a lot to me to support this project, obviously, but really supporting doing something cool for my wife and her friend. You can read more about that at the Patreon. Just search my name, Phil Dawson. It's also in the show notes. Also, don't forget about the Discord. It's a nice little haven for magic-related and unrelated stuff, so feel free to join up and introduce yourself. You can find that in the show notes as well. And as a reminder, I'd be really happy if you could share the podcast with your friends, playgroup, or any online communities you might be a part of. It'd be really great and appreciated. Finally, you can also reach me on Twitter or Instagram, Phil in Sendai. I love hearing from you listeners and hearing how you found us, what you like, all that jazz. Um, anyway, we are on to part three of Time Streams, basically halfway through the book. This is a bit of a short chapter, too, so kind of setting the stage for what's up next. So you can probably expect to want more. So you'll get it, though. Let's do it. Part 3. Journeys. Chapter 12. It was a decade later when Malzra called them together in the new hall of artifact creatures. This hall was no mausoleum and no mere museum. It was a working laboratory, robotics infirmary, an assembly line, a military staging ground, and a tutorial hall that offered instructions to humans and artifacts alike. Karn's touches were apparent throughout the place. No machines were interred here. The exhibit contained only living, active mechanisms which spent periods of voluntary deactivation on the view. The plans of the various inventions were stored in an archive along one end of the huge chamber, available to scholars, students, and artifacts themselves. The command center for Malzra's Island's defense lay here as well. As a result, the place bustled even in the depths of night. Some of Malzra's runners and scorpions were stationed here permanently, and a puma reported in each afternoon, but the main body of machine defenders were stationed remotely around the island. A hundred of the troops were posted in fast time curtains around the academy. They could leap from cover even before an assault could commence. These machines were rotated into and out of service every day due to the ravages of fast time. Another hundred served in slow time curtains, the long-term defenses. They were rotated into and out of service twice a year. Between them and our corps of sorcerers, led by Mage Master Baron, the island's defenses are complete, Malzra said as he paced before the wall of schematics. Mechanical and biological troops were laid out in ink and paper in this private corner of the Hall of Artifacts. Five hundred large-scale artifact creatures, seven hundred and fifty new falcon engines, a fleet of thirty ornithopters, and even a new dirigible. Baron, Joyra, Teferi, a handful of senior scholars, and Karn sat in the tutorial space and studied the layouts, though the island's defense systems were well known to all of them. Malzra's presentation was quickly becoming a tedious review. In the past five years, we have repelled five Phyrexian incursions and slain over a thousand negators. We know, Joyra reminded him impatiently, we were the ones who fought those battles. Malzra turned from his pacing and glanced up, blinking. There will be more. The creatures will be deadlier and more numerous with ingenuity, foresight, and grit. The systems we have deployed should be enough to repel these attacks. 
For the time being, the island is safe. Master Molzra, Jorah interrupted. We know all this. I hope so, since I am going away, the man said quietly. That brought back the attention of everyone but Baron. The mage master leaned back in his seat in appraisal, watching the response of the others. Joyra stood, alarm in her voice and on her face. You're leaving? Again? What about the Phyrexian Gorge? What about concluding all the business of the Academy? Baron rose as well. He's going on Academy business. As the Phyrexian Gorge, Malzor has spent the last half hour reviewing the defenses and our tasks and maintaining and upgrading them. That's not what I'm talking about, Joyra said, crossing her arms over her chest. He has unfinished business. Our senior student is reminding me of the children of fury, Malzor said cutting through Joyra's objections and Baron's apologies. She is reminding me of my pledge to clean up the messes of my past, chief of which would seem to be this time-torn isle and the monsters I brought here, and the children you brought here. And, added Karn quietly, the machines you brought here. Thank you, Malzra said, not unkindly to the added comments. But in the way of young folk, you have underestimated my capacity for pernicious destruction. No, the ills I have done here are nothing next to the ills I have done elsewhere in the world at large. He walked back to the drawings, reached up with hands that seemed to almost glow in that dark corner of the Hall of Artifacts, and drew down a large pallet. Behind it lay a map of the Phyrexian Gorge. Lines of lead detailed the wound-like fissure, dark and narrow, overrun with evil. This is our most up-to-date rendering of the gorge. With a sword-sized pointer, Malzra gestured at the drawing. Here's the gladiatorial arena, and here the palace of Crick, and here the breeding laboratories, in these hovels beside and beneath the water. Crick's minions dwell, nearly a thousand strong, the number growing by ten each day. Unless extinguished, they are fomenting a threat that will one day overrun the whole island. With a swift and fierce gesture, Malzra tore down the map, revealing beneath it much larger schematic, what looked like a series of nesting dolls in cross-section. This is Phyrexia, nine stacked planes, one within another. This top layer is the only one where a human might survive for a few hours. It is inhabited by dragon engines, some 500 feet in length, and creatures discarded as useless. Creatures that would make our runners and pumas and scorpions seem like mechanical fleas. The dense forests in this region are made of semi-metallic plants, poisonous, with razor-edged leaves that grow in the light of the ceaseless lightning storms that fill the soot-black sky. Each layer downward grows worse with mutilated priests, demon hordes, witch engines, titanic worms, poison, acid, and fire. At the base of it all, there is a figure deeper, darker, more hideous than any Dominaria has ever known. To himself, Baron whispered a name. None heard that name, but the look of solemn dread on his face made the others winced. I have awakened this creature. I have drawn him here. That is how deep and ancient my mistakes are. I am responsible for the plague of Talaria, yes, but also for the gradual collapse of the realm of angels, the long ice age of this world, the destruction of Argoth, and the very introduction of evil into the world. That is the scale of my failures. All of that is what I strive to undo. Crick is a nightmare, yes, but one man's nightmare. Crick's lord is the nightmare of a whole world, a, a corporate, unconscious, and universal terror. As certainly as Crick is arming himself to take over this isle, the creature I will not name is arming himself to take over the whole world. There were no interruptions now, only sober eyes. To fight such a creature and his millions of minions, I need, we need 
Much different arsenal. I go to begin work on it, Mulsra said. At last, Joyra had regained her voice. How can you be responsible for all that? How could anyone be responsible for all that? Even if you were responsible, how, how could you or any mortal man hope to undo all those evils? You'd, you'd have to be Urza Planeswalker to have any hope of... She broke off mid-sentence, her horrified glare of comprehension bringing paralysis to her whole being. Nevertheless, I must go, Mulzra said, and I go alone, for now. It is a very dangerous place I am going. In time, if I am successful, I will bring all of you with me to help. Trembling, Joyra had regained her seat. You're not... you're not going to Phyrexia? No, said Malzra fondly. He crossed to Karn and reached out towards his neck. For a moment, the Silverman withdrew as if fearing the Master would unlatch his skull piece and deactivate him. Instead, Malzra lifted a pendant from the golem's neck and held it out before them all. A lizard-shaped trinket of very hard metal dangled, glinting in the dark air. Not Phyrexia. I'm going to your homeland, Joyra. I'm going to Shiv. Urza descended. It felt nice not to have to walk. It felt nice to indulge himself in the luxuries of being a planeswalker, to forget about the worrisome business of feigning breath and blinking, of being asked to join in dinners. For him... Eating was only a nuisance. Despite his many almost limitless powers, stepping plane to plane with little more than a thought, casting all colors of magic at high levels, living beyond the terrors of ravaging time, seeing to the essence of things, smelling Phyrexian blood at a hundred paces, portraying a convincing human was a task that was at once vexing in its minutiae and exhausting in its limitations. It was a small and tedious job, but a necessary one. Except in times like these. Urza descended past great rafts of sulfuric cloud and banks of rusty steam. His ceremonial robes shrank inward about him, becoming a suit marked with drake feather pads to deflect the volcanic heat of landscape. His sandals transformed into thick leather boots that laced to the knee. Hair braided itself tightly to his head, proof against stray fingers of flame. He needn't enter a landscape this way, dropping from such a height, but he wanted to survey this land before alighting upon it. And, frankly, he enjoyed the ride. Urza had descended once before this way, returning to the ancient ruined wasteland where he and Mishra had first discovered the Thran site of Koilos. That landscape, blasted by a force that sank continents and brought millennium of winter to the world, could not have been more tortured than this one. Backlit mountains jutted in a devilish ring against the sooty horizon. At their tilted tops, steamy lakes glowed evilly in halos of brimstone. Twisted piles of rock slumped down the sides of these silent sentinels, and rivers of stone pulsed and glowed like arteries. Among them, black courses formed networks of cool veins. Black and red alike, the rivers plunged into a great steaming ocean of bubbling lava, beside which sat twisted columns of stone like dejected statues. The magma vented gases in mile-high jets, rock-spitting coronas, and foamy, belching chunks that sizzled nastily along the shore. Urza descended. He landed atop a knob of stone that overhung the seething sea of fire. Beneath his feet, the rock was maroon and warm and rumpled, like a glob of blood pudding. All around him, the air was hot and thick with noxious fumes. Urza breathed and reminded himself what a good thing it was to be immortal. He lifted his gaze. There, above him, magnificent in the dead glare of the place and the rolling gloom of the sky, was what he had come to see, the manna rig. 
It crouched on a massive of basalt, vulture-like on broad talons of stone and cast clay. These talons ended in mirrored claws that reached in a webwork down the rock face to the boiling caldera below. The extrusion looked like a gigantic heart, and once it functioned that way. In ancient time, the tubes that crisscrossed it drew lava up from the boiling pit and pumped it into the immense facility above. The rig was a thing to behold. At either end of it, a pair of bowl-shaped heat shields each held aloft a great city. One, tucked back from the ocean of fire, was an ancient monastery, its conic temples and towers stacked in a decorous hive into the sky. The other, hanging out over the brimstone sea, was a colossal forge of Thran design. It was here that the incredibly hard Thran metal had come from. Urza had arrived in Shiv to explore this site. Between the two cities extended a long storage and production facility with high cathedral-like walls and tapered archways. In that spot, Urza would begin to assemble the weapon that would turn back the Phyrexians forever. Jagged script crawled along the base of the bowl-shaped heat shields. Within the structure would be more script, perhaps undisturbed libraries of it. The rooms and halls, the mechanisms and walls themselves would be chronicles in metal and stone of the minds of the builders. He would learn to forge Thran metal, yes, but more, he would plumb secrets of the greatest artificers the world had ever known. Secrets that had made them into the very enemies he now faced. Urza strode from the warm shoulder of stone, making his way past ropey lines of cooled magma. His gemstone eyes scanned the eroded edges of the volcano. He would have to circle north and east, past a giant steaming fissure and a pair of twin cliffs washed by tides of superheated rock. It would be a five-mile walk to reach a structure one mile away. Uncomfortable walk. He was immune to the destruction of fire and poison, but not inured to the pain they would cause. To his clothing, Urza imagined a silver gilt wrap that flung back the red heat assailing him on all sides. The wrap took form, and he felt his other clothes cool and sigh, venting heat. A veil of fine-ringed metal mesh assembled itself before his face. Thus garbed, Urza climbed the difficult mountain passes. Of course, he could simply have wished himself into the structure, but to walk a land was to know it. Geography would force him to trace the same paths as generations of others, perhaps as the Thran themselves. He would approach the rig as they had, would see it the way they had. It was much like holding a book upright when learning to read, though it's perfectly possible to read upside down and backward. Already the alien script of this place was beginning to resolve into meaningful words. There were trails here, broad, smooth, patient trails. The stone over which they ran was etched with claw marks. Paths led to various prominent points, lookout posts. If they were currently manned, Urza could see no sign of it. Whoever used these trails moved in the open at a measured pace. They were man-sized creatures. They ruled this place and routinely defended it. Urza lifted the pendant about his neck and stared at the robed lizard dangling there. Other creatures frequented the hillsides, too. They had made various rank nests beneath tilted stones and within lava tubes. Though hidden from sight, these spots reeked of furative movements, worry, and quick death. Spies. Some of the sites were burned out from within. Their bones of their inhabitants lay in ruin at their entrance and warning to others. Other spots, invisible to mortal eyes but plain to Urza's all-seeing gaze, were yet occupied. Tiny eyes gleamed, rat-like and blinking, beneath dark brows of stone. Goblins. Urza smiled gently. Poor, wretched monsters, vermin more accursed than rats. Once he had taken hold of the facility, he could bring a few dozen scorpion engines to clear out the infestation. Until then, he had a long walk, unless a goblin emerged to bar his way, and descending from the clouds had probably done much to convince all watchers to merely watch, or as he would not engage any of the beasts. 
He entered a vast defile and wandered the length of it. In black-eyed cave mouths, goblins crouched. They whispered to each other and blinked in resentful appraisal, but did not emerge. Urza's instinctual mind marked their positions while his higher mind analyzed the structure that hung overhead. A third part of his psyche roamed a different defile, one glimpsed long years before. In it, two vast armies engaged in a death match. Urza had believed the vision to show the Thran driving the Phyrexians from the world. It took him millennia to realize the Thran had willingly become the Phyrexians, that Mishra had willingly transformed himself too. Only in that bitter realization had Urza begun to regain his sanity, to recognize the enemy in himself. Something emerged from the lip of stone at the mouth of the defile. Many somethings, their rust-red robes melded so naturally with the cliff sides that Urza had not seen them until they were rising from every crevice and steam vent across the stone. They moved with a silent, sinewy grace. Some slid out on all fours, clutching the ground with four-clawed hands and feet. Others strode about on hind legs and brandished thin, wickedly barbed pole arms. They posted themselves in Urza's path and planted muscular tails behind them. The nearest ones drew back mottled hoods from their heads. They were reptiles, lizard men with short, toothy snouts, small, bright eyes, and craggy skulls. Their scaly skin gleamed gray-green and red in the fiery light of Caldera. Joira had called them the Viachino. The largest Viachino in the party of thirty-some approached Urza. It held its hook-edged polearm out before it. The creature glared into the planeswalker's eyes. Silver pupils stared, unblinking. There was intelligence in that alien gaze, but also fear and resentment. It hissed angrily. Urza's mind scrolled through all the languages he had learned in three millennia, many of them only written, never spoken. This tongue was not among the ones he had heard before, but for Urza to know a language was only for him to breathe it in. Get you off forbiddenness high, the lead creature hissed. To understand an alien language was one thing, to frame a response in it was something else. Urza wondered if he should have brought Joyra with him as a native liaison. He could planeswalk and snatch her up even now, but the rattle of a polearm butts on volcanic scree convinced him not to endanger her. He kept his construction simple. Do I look Gitu? Who are you then? I'm Molzra of Talaria. I have come to see the rig. It is forbidden. I must see the rig. You cannot stop me. Perhaps I cannot the warrior said, his eyes glinting like metal. But a champion can. From the rear ranks of the Viachino, eight lizard men emerged. Not eight, but one the size of eight. It was not a Viachino, though, but a young, shivan drake. The massive creature slithered forward on hands and feet, tail lashing viciously behind it. A predatory grin drew black jowls back from rows of dagger-like teeth. The thing's eyes were small and keen beneath horn brows. Scaly spikes rose across its shoulders. In place of the robes of the others, this brute wore a leather harness, as though it were often used to haul heavy machinery. No dumb beast, though. The drake reared up and snorted. <laughs> I'm Ramadaragas, champion of the Viachino. Feeling so arrogant now? Urza tilted his head in admission. Were he a mere man, he'd be terrified at the prospects of battle, but... Urza could sidestep the fastest blows of this creature, could shock him mercilessly until he fell dead, could enervate him so he could not attack, could summon armies of artifact creatures to swarm the hillside and dismantle these creatures. Subtly in dealing with such creatures was a lesson hard learned over the last few thousand years. It was not fear that informed his next actions, but a concern that he not reveal too much about his powers just yet. Arrogant? No. Confident? 
Yes. Urza waved the monster forward. Ramadargaz came on. The shouldering might of the drake was like a mountain moving. Urza did not flinch away. Without changing appearance, his robes hardened into armor that would bend only when he willed it to. The creature clutched him in one massive claw, nails clamping down. Urza did not struggle. Ramadargaz hoisted him into the air and snorted hot breath over him. It regarded the unmoving man. Shall I bear you to the dungeons or kill you now? You let me go, Urza replied placidly, and take me to your king. Our bait is not an vagrant, Amadargas sneered. And I cannot let you go. You have seen our homeland. You remain our captive or die. I foresee a different future. The beast clenched its claws. Urza's robes crumpled in slowly around him, but he gave no gasp of pain. The Vyashino watched in awe, half expecting blood to rim the man's eyes and lips. Instead, Urza repeated his request. Release me and take me to your bay. Enraged, Ramadargaz opened his jaws in a roar and lifted Urza into the gap. Teeth dripped hot saliva across his head. The monster shoved him inward. As placid as ever, Urza reached up into the drooling jowls of the thing. One hand clutched a great slimy tooth above him and the other a tooth below. He flexed his shoulders. The drake's jaws distended like a dog with a stick rammed in his mouth. Ramadargaz gagged and rolled his head. He hissed a cloud of acidic breath. Lizardmen scattered, but the man in the maw did not relent. Ramadargaz tried to clamp his jaws together. A great clacking sound answered. He howled with pain. Yanking Urza from his mouth, he hurled the man to the ground. The beast clutched one jowl with a twitching claw. Urza rolled across the volcanic dirt and rose to his feet. He clutched in his hand a dripping drake tooth. Now you will take me to your bay. Urza's gaze brooked no discussion. Ramadargaz dropped the claw from his mouth. Scaly hackles bristled across arched shoulders. Hot plumes of death jetted from his nostrils. Twin flames swept over Urza. He stood in their midst. Poison and pulverized rock sluiced past him. In moments, he was lost in the dense blaze. The Vyashino, who had fled once, did so again, backing farther from the battle. Ramadargaz vented his fury until lungs were flat and throat was raw. In the aftermath of rolling smoke, there was no sign of the invader. Lizardmen ventured timidly from the rills of where they were had sheltered. A purring growl that must have been laughter circulated among the creatures. As if stepping around a corner in space, Urza suddenly appeared. The gory dragon tooth still hung in his grasp. Enough bravado! Now take me to the bay! Rage blossomed blood-red in the drake's eyes. His claws sank deep into the volcanic earth, its haunches gathered to spring. Jaw dropping wide, Ramadargaz lunged through the air to swallow Urza whole. The planeswalker grimaced. With an offhand gesture, he flung an arc of magic across the beast. It transformed into stone. Ramadargaz, the champion of the Vyashino, became a statue frozen in terrific motion. He seemed even more massive and fearsome in that aspect. His jaws gaped wide. His eyes glared blindly. His whole figure was caught in the act of a leap he would never finish. Urza shrugged. The pulpy tooth waggled in his hand. Well, now instead of a champion, you have a gargoyle. His voice grew steely. Take me to the bay! Though none of the Vyashino warriors approached, the largest called out from the lee of a nearby boulder. No! If this is what you do to our champion, what will you do to our bay? It seemed a reasonable observation, and thus, by extension, these could be reasonable lizardmen. Urza approached the Drake statue. He took a few visual measurements, positioning himself carefully out of the line of charge. Urza set the Drake's tooth back into the spot it had occupied. No sooner touched the creature 
then it fused to his mouth. Urza took a step back. Next moment, the dragon's stony semblance fell away. Ramadargaz vaulted in his attack. He soared past Urza and crashed into the ground before a pile of cooled magma. His toppling bulk shattered the stone bulwark. Chunks of rock bounded out. Viashino scattered farther. The drake's tail lashed the ground. He rolled twice and fetched up against a rocky knob. There he lay, miserable, a twisted mess of wing and claw and scale. Urza gazed bemusedly at the creature. He addressed all the lizard men. I could go to the bay without you to guide me, but there may be more mayhem. The drake rose. He probed his jawline and gasped out wonderingly. My tooth! It's back! I can kill or I can heal, Urza said plainly. You decide. Viashino and Drake exchanged sullen glances. The leader of the lizard men nodded meaningfully to their champion. I regret my actions, Ramadargas stammered resentfully. Violence is not the way. All is forgiven. This is a lesson I took years to learn as well, Urza said. He gestured up the trail toward the mana rig. Shall we proceed? With a wounded bow, not quite courtly but not quite mocking, the drake led Urza up the path. The Ashina warriors fell in line behind them. Joyra stood in the East Forest Guard Post along the path from the academy to the harbor. There's a small remote tower provisioned for three guards with a single cot to allow a sleeping shift. Tonight, the battlements of the short length of the wall were manned by only two, but Karn did not need to sleep. He stood below, beside the locked iron gate, and watched through an arrow loop at a curved section of wall. Nothing would get past him. Nothing ever did. One end of the wall verged on a deep, fast time rift where a contingent of eighty runners and scorpions were stationed. Anything living would be slain by the temporal curtain, and anything unliving would be swarmed by the Academy's machines. The glimmer moon shimmered from their silvery shoulders in watchful optics. On the other end of the wall was a steep cliff at the edge of Angelwood. The puma patrols would slay any monsters moving through the forest and the falcons any moving through the air beyond. It had been ten years since Joyra had lounged away the day in one of the warm pools of Angelwood. She looked no older outwardly, but inwardly she felt ancient. The slow time water that sustained her and all the older scholars and students preserved her body, but her spirit was no longer that of a child. She had been on her vision quest. She had learned how to break through, not merely to save Teferi from his isolation, but to save herself as well. She had found not a soulmate, but a spiritual twin and had found that she had discovered her destiny. It was not a life of bright seas and distant shores, though. It was a life of Phyrexians, forever bubbling out of Crick's dark kingdom. Tonight would be no exception. All clear down there, Karn? Joyra asked, pacing the top of the rampart. All clear, Joyra, came the response in a voice like distant thunder. We have a full complement of runners tonight? Yes, he replied quietly. Joyra sighed. Karn was not much of a conversationalist while he was on watch. Her education complete, the academy built, and her post among the scholars secured, Joyra had had her fill of lectures and demonstrations, experiments and designs. She could have used a little conversation. How many negators do you think we'll see tonight? The average number at this location is one for every watch of the day and three for every watch of the night, Karn noted. That number might change now that Malzra is gone. Gone to Shiv, Joyra said sadly. I don't know if I would even recognize the place. I was 11 when I left it. That was over 40 years ago. 
She shook her head, picking up a chip of stone from the top of the battlements and hurling it off into the forest. The stone ricocheted off a pair of trees, sending a deep and mournful echo through Angelwood. Probably never see that place again. Moser said that he'd be back to collect you once he'd prepared the way, Karn noted. By the time he's done that, I certainly won't recognize the place, muttered Joyra bitterly. The Viachino and goblins will be massacred, the drakes will be enslaved, and the mountains will be leveled in the fields of glass. Over the years, Karn had developed a nascent sense of humor that relied heavily on irony. You have great faith in Master Mulsra. Master Mulsra? Do you know who Master Mulsra is? He's Urza Planeswalker. He's caused every great disaster in the last 3,000 years. Yes, I know, Karn said quietly. I overheard Baron and Urza on numerous occasions when they thought I was deactivated. Joyra growled, tossing her hands into the air and staring daggers at the silvery figure below. You might have mentioned it. Urza seemed to want to keep it a secret. Didn't it shock you? Didn't it seem impossible for the man to be a 3,000-year-old legend? Karn's silvery head shook slowly. I am a man made of silver. My best friend is a Gitu genius who is 50 years old but looks 20. I dwell on an island where a day might pass in minutes or years. No, Malzor's real identity didn't shock me. Aren't you outraged here's a man solely responsible for every wicked thing that has happened to our world? He makes messes and leaves? He has given Baron a beacon, Karn said. Jairus' rant was caught for a moment short. He what? Baron has a beacon, a jewel-handled dagger that is magically linked to the pendant around Urza's neck. Baron can summon him at a moment's notice, should the war turn suddenly. He can appear as quickly as the island's native defenders. Jairus shook her head. You're defending him? Don't you see? Urza should have stayed here until the Phyrexians were no longer a threat. He's the reason the Phyrexians are here at all. We are the reason the Phyrexians are here, corrected Karn. You and I are the reason Crick is here. Urza might have been the reason they came, but we are the reason Crick got in. It's up to all of us to get rid of them. Even as these words sank in, Joyra glimpsed, in the deep distance, the movement of something vast and multi-legged, scuttling like a giant flea. Karn struck the alarm. A contingent of five runners darted emu-like from the fast time rent beside the wall. They loped forward along the trail, their legs ratcheted in the darkness. The distant monster wheeled about, retreating. In moments, the runners closed in. They flashed silver in the light of the glimmer moon. The small snap of coral rounds rattled through the forest night. The Phyrexians shrieked but turned. It was small and fiendish between the solemn trees. The scything sound of the runners' scimitars ended in five pairs of meaty thuds. One by one, their internal charges went off. Hunks of meat and blood and mechanism leapt up into the air. In moments, there was only smoke and the tangle of legs, monster and machine. We brought Crick here, Joyra, Karn repeated in the drifting silence. Yes, she agreed. We need to get rid of him. Yes, Majesty, Urza said graciously as he bowed before the lizard lord. I am a planeswalker. I and all of Dominaria need your forge. Urza made a broad gesture, taking in the high hall, its rings of balconies, and its conic vault. He had seen much of the ancient facility on his way in. The coke chambers and blast furnaces, the mold rooms and rollers, the ancient gear work and chain drives. He had seen enough to know that the forge was capable of producing far more than trinkets if it was given over into the right hands. 
The bay was an elder Viachino. A gray, grizzled waddle hung at his neck, and a bright red crest topped his head. Robed in purple, bay fire eyes stood at an ornate rail, the equivalent of a throne for a species with neither the physiology nor the need to sit. The rail was carved from one wall of a giant piston chamber. The circular space had become a pulpit, protected from attack on three sides. Its symbolism was clear. Whoever stood within the ancient piston chamber embodied the power of the arcane machinery all around. Fireeye exuded that power. His eyes were small and implacable as they moved across the gathered throng in his audience chamber. He glowered especially at the young Drake who had been sent out to best Urza. At last, Fireeye spoke. What would you build with this forge? Urza blinked, taken aback a moment. Machines, living machines, like this one. He reached out into empty space, and in his hand appeared a large sheet of paper, the plan of the silver man, Karn, and spread it on the floor before the bay. Men like this. I will make them from your metal. I will make them to defend our world. The bay stared for some time at the plans before hissing out his response. This machine will work. I will show you, yes, Urza said emphatically. I will bring a prototype made of metal, an old metal, too soft. You will see he works well. Again, the silence. Urza was not accustomed to waiting for the decisions of others, but he needed these creatures. They knew more about the rig than any other beings on the planet. They knew the secrets of making Thran metal. At last, the bay spoke again. We may make for metal men with our forge on two conditions. Yes, prompted Urza. First, there's a certain ancient enemy of ours. The goblins? Urza guessed. No. The goblins are a menace, yes. But our patrols are more than able to dispatch them. The enemy I speak of is the fire drake. Jeredalgars, mother of our champion. She has plagued us since her son joined us, the bay said. You must halt her attacks. It will be done, Urza replied. And the other condition? Second, grant us our property in perpetuity. The prototype creature you speak of. Urza stared a long while at the Lizard Lord, sitting there enthroned on the massive piston, his gemstone eyes lifted, searching the darksome balconies above as though an answer would lie there. It is quite a sacrifice, you ask. The bay nodded placidly. Among our people, sacrifice for the tribe is the highest honor. There is wisdom in this saying. There is a thought of all the sacrifices in this war so far. As always, the Phyrexian threat came screaming back to the fore of his mind. Yes, said Urza Plainswalker. You may have him. With Urza gone, things are quiet here at the Academy. We have had the usual Phyrexian incursions on the borders. They are only tests, of course, and by 
Killing off each of these beasts, we are only helping Crick perfect his invasion force for the day when they will all come across. But for now, we are safe and we build more machines. You can only wonder what Urza is doing on the other side of the world. You can only hope that the lessons he has learned here at Talaria have made him more human again. Human or inhuman, I pray he succeeds. Otherwise, we are all doomed. Baron, Mage Master of Tularia. <laughs>